Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. We like to think of ourselves in the clandestine services as tip of the spear. But the idea is that as a democracy, it is imperative that our policymakers get the best information they can so they can make the best decisions in the national security interests of our country. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. Mike Howard is a former station chief for the CIA and corporate security expert. After his career in government, he served for over a decade as the chief security officer for Microsoft, overseeing physical security worldwide for the company, including the personal security for Bill Gates. Mike, we spend quite a bit of time on this show talking to politicians and policymakers about geopolitics. So I have Really been looking forward to the chance to talk to you because you're someone who served on the front lines, not only having to execute those policies, but having to live with their consequences. Great to have you on. Welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. Honored that you asked me to be here. And yes, no, I'm not a politician, so I can speak from hopefully a different optic on these matters. Before we dive in, why don't you give us the quick overview of the career of Mike Howard, because it has taken some amazing twists and turns. Thank you. Yeah, it has. I grew up in, in Northern California, always wanted to be a police officer, probably saw too many cop movies when I was growing up. Eventually, I ended up working in the Oakland Police Department in the late 70s. Unfortunately, Oakland has a lot of crime, and we, uh, but it was a great place to learn to be a police officer. Read a book one day off-duty called Piercing the Reich, which I still have a copy of in my office. And it was about how in World War II, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, was formed up to take on Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. I thought, wow, that might be interesting, and I wanted to travel the world. Ended up uh, going to, believe it or not, they had CIA had open recruiting offices in the federal buildings back then. And it was during the Reagan buildup after he got elected. They were hiring more law enforcement, military police, so... Joined the CIA, I spent six years in their, what they call office of security, doing a lot of things I did later in life in the corporate security world, including the uh, two years on the director of CIA's protective detail. Made the jump over to, you know, sometimes we call it the dark side, the clandestine side of the house, worked in the director of operations in our counterterrorism center. For a vast majority of my career, I spent 22 years at CIA. You know, my then wife, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, was also CIA. We decided we'd had enough of Washington. I've done everything I wanted to do there. And through a couple twists and turns, as you said, I ended up at Microsoft. First year running the executive protection for Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, and some of the, the top executives there. And then morphed into becoming the chief security officer for the bulk of my 16 years there. And now I'm happily retired in Las Vegas with my wife. <laughs> Watch out for the, the strip on payday, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You joined the CIA at the height of the Cold War, but found yourself in counterterrorism. Was there tension there? Was there a friction between those two missions, especially given the nature of the Reagan buildup and what was perceived as the major threat at the time? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, Ken. I've really never been asked that, but it, there was. Counterterrorism Center was formed around 1986, and it was the first time they were bringing in analysts and operators together to work after a common target. 
primarily our Near East Division, as they called it at the time, they were responsible for all the, the counterterrorism issues. So having this new entity, there was some friction in terms of the NE Division saying, well, what are you guys going to do that we can't do? And, and also there was a time, believe it or not, at CIA where analysts and operators didn't talk to each other. They really didn't talk to each other unless they had to. CTC was the first time we brought the two groups together, I guess the common target, working together the way it should be. There was friction. It took some growing pains, but we eventually got, you know, CTC made its bones in terms of its ability to, to run operations, to be effective, and also to collaborate with our brethren in the in any division, because we were basically we're all after the same bad guys serving the same flag. Was that firewall between the analysts and the operators a cultural thing? Was it a legal thing? Because I I have to imagine that the operating instructions for both groups were a little bit different. In clandestine ops, you had to bend and sometimes, I would imagine, break rules in a way that would have made others uncomfortable. Am I right? You are absolutely correct. Two different mindsets. The operators felt that they were hired because of what you said, their ability to to be a chameleon, to morph, to do things that they had to do. Analysts were pretty obviously straight by the book. Operators didn't trust, you know, analysts to keep their mouths shut, to not talk out of turn, you know, in other places because they weren't trained that way. Things have changed now where analysts get a lot of the same clandestine training, operational training as the operators. So they understand the parameters of what the operators do and why they do what they do in terms of need to know compartmentation of information. But back then, yeah, it was a huge cultural divide. Analysts obviously very necessary. They can give you the big perspective, big picture thing that you need as an operator to operate in a particular country. But there was certainly not a lot of trust or love lost between the two until, again, I think the centers spent, you know, whether it was counterterrorism center, counter narcotic center, what have you, kind of broke the mold of bringing the two sides together to work hand in hand. There's a cryptic line in your LinkedIn profile that says simply, Operations U.S. Government 22 years. I love that because whether you intended it to come across this way or not, it is something of a political statement. I'm referring to this idea that without what you were doing and your brothers and sisters at CIA, the implication from that line in your LinkedIn bio is that the U.S. government would not operate, would not function. Can you speak to that as someone who has been as deep in the clandestine world as you can be and just how important that is to the functioning of government and how overlooked it has to be? Yeah, uh People always talk about tip of the spear. You and your, in your profession as a, as a pilot pirate, you were tip of the spear. We like to think of ourselves in the clandestine services as tip of the spear as well. In order to, I mean, when this country was founded, and there were spies way back even in, in George Washington days, right? But the idea is that as a democracy, it is imperative that our policymakers get the best information they can so they can make the best decisions in the national security interests of our country or in the economic security interests or political interests. To a great extent, CIA officers are the ones that, that provide that information, the operators who actually have to meet with assets clandestinely, get information that we normally couldn't get as a country so that our policymakers have that holistic view of what's going on. You know, I think, in fact, I know that this country would be less safe and would not be in terms of information that our policymakers need. We'd have a gap if it wasn't for the operators, along with the analysts, obviously, who put a lot of that information together 
to get it to the policymakers, we, there'd be a huge gap. And so it's necessary. Operations is a necessary part, uh, in my opinion, of, of any democracy. And they have to go hand in hand, but you can't have one without the other. It's that friction that really interests me. And you alluded to it earlier when you talked about operators having to do whatever it took to get the job done. Did that ever put you in a compromising position? We know historically it has when we look at some of the decisions made at CIA, especially after 9-11. How did people in your position balance those dilemmas? There's always, uh, there's always guidance, right? legal guidance. You know, we have a huge legal team there. They have these things called findings. So if there's a finding to do X in a particular country, that maybe the, the president and national security uh, entities want the agency to execute off of, that has to be written off legally. There has to be a legal finding that we in the agency have the authority to do that. The agency has wide latitude internationally, as most people know, or some people maybe don't know. I mean, that's what we were created for. But under legal guidelines, especially after the 70s during the Church Commission, when a lot of the abuses of the agency came out, there are a lot more restrictions on what you can and cannot do. At the end of the day, when you're given a marching order, you have to look at within yourself, obviously, as a person, not just a CIA operations officer, as to whether you believe that order is legal, in some cases moral. There's a lot of gray, obviously, in our world. And one of the things they look for in our psychological profiles when we go through our evaluation process to become a CIA officer is, you know, can you follow the rules of the agency, the laws of the United States government, while still operating in a foreign country, in many cases, in effect, breaking the laws of that country by conducting espionage operations there. And if you can't reconcile that with yourself, this job is probably not for you. I would say I never found myself in a compromising situation. I always felt I had legal authority to do whatever we had to do, and I believed that whatever we were doing was in the best interest of the U.S. government. I also, because I was a cop, because I was raised a Christian, I've got a moral compass as well. So we're not automatons, just like you and your former colleagues in the military. You know, we have feelings, we have consciences. And if it ever came to that, uh, which it didn't, I knew I would hopefully be able to step up to the plate and say no or say, hey, we've got a pause here. Are we sure we want to go down this route? Does it make sense legally? Does it make sense morally? Operationally, maybe it does, but is there another way? I didn't find myself in that particular situation, but, uh, and I'm probably knock on wood, I didn't have to. We've talked to a number of folks with strong perspectives on this, from Leon Panetta to, to Stan McChrystal, but being on the receiving end, at the tip of the spear, as you said, did you find yourself having to play lawyer more than you wanted to? This is something I've written about in The Atlantic when it comes to the military having to make constitutional decisions now. Were you ever in a situation where you thought your legal expertise didn't meet the moment? No, I don't think so. But, I, you know, I was, I was blessed to be in a time when, you know, when I got in there in the 80s, it was the Cold War, but it was also... Hezbollah and some of these nation-state organizations. We just lost William Buckley, one of our, our chiefs of stations in, in Beirut. Gloves proverbially were off to go get these guys. And then the Iraq War, Gulf War One, came around. And again, we were always in a good position. I know what you're alluding to because, you know, during the, the recent wars, there, there have been these, you know, situations where you've had enhanced interrogations. And 
the people that were, were doing it there, I think were doing it fully understanding that they had the authority to do so. Uh, we were told as an organization, gloves off, right? I mean, we lost thousands of people in 9-11. We weren't going to let that happen again. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, and, you know, not all politicians are bad. You can't broad brush everybody. But it's interesting that, you know, in, in my optic, there were people in political positions that said, hey, go get them, and no problem at the time. And then afterwards, when there's blowback, well, you shouldn't have done that. Well, as an operator, you kind of don't have that, that luxury, right? You know, similar to the military, you're given an order. And yes, you can defy it if you think it, it's wrong, but I think you take everything in terms of the times, the context of the times in which that particular operation or activity was taking place. It's okay to do reviews and to say, okay, could have done better here, or could have done better here, but to take today's world and then project it back to when those things were taking place, I think it's unfair to the, to the boots on the ground who were just trying to do a good job. You mentioned the military, which you know I served in and still stay very close with my buddies from from those days. And and there's this ethos among uniform personnel that it's not only a moral obligation to disobey an illegal order, but a legal requirement. Is that same lesson drilled into you at, at CIA? It is. It really is. Because of the fact of the latitude that you have overseas and what the nature of your job is. You know, there's some covert action, there's recruitment of assets to spy on their, their host governments or other organizations. There has to be that balance. And it is drilled into you that if you have any questions about something, and it maybe it wasn't like that in the old days, old days meaning maybe the 50s or 60s. <laughs> when I was there, yes, you had recourse and it was taught to you in training about the things you can and cannot do. And if you have questions about anything, Go up to your superiors, make sure. And then there's always the IG route, right? You could always call the hotline if you felt that something was amiss and that you needed to report it to the IG. But I actually served one year as an investigator on the IG staff at CIA, so I know that that is a, an avenue for officers. But yes, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're CIA officers, but we serve under the Constitution of the United States. We have oversight. We constantly talk to the committees. You know, after 9-11, I had to go with a group of chiefs of station to talk to HIPSI, House Senate Permanent Committee on Intelligence, about what we were doing post 9-11 with the FBI. And so, yes, that was drilled into you as well as should be. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else the importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. You eventually wound up as a station chief, I believe, in the Pittsburgh office. To be honest with you, until reading your bio, I didn't realize that the CIA had domestic station chiefs. Can you explain that? Because the image of a station chief is someone deployed overseas in an embassy, managing collection and analysis sometimes from there. What does a domestic station chief do? Sure. We've had these for years under many names. When I was there, it was under National Resources Division. What they do is twofold. They work with any businesses that are willing to help us out. And we're not talking about 
recruitment because we're not allowed to recruit American nationals, obviously. For the uninitiated, by recruiting, you mean assets. You don't mean staff. Go ahead and explain that. Yeah, so recruiting in our parlance is, you know, uh, Ken has access to information that I think would be valuable to the U.S. government. We have a set of requirements that we we work off of in terms of whether it's political, economic, or terrorism, what have you. I believe Ken has some information. My job is to what we go through the recruitment cycle, spot, assess, develop, recruit, and report, so that at some point in time, Ken is reporting to me clandestinely information that he shouldn't be giving me, but we feel is important, obviously, to the national security. That's the classic CIA case officer and asset relationship. That's the recruitment. Get it back to domestic operations. Again, taking you know you can as an example. If you ran a business and you were you did a lot of work overseas and you were willing to not recruit it, but you were just willing to say give us atmospherics on what you saw. If you were dealing with certain level you know government officials or different things, you know that's kind of one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is really working with with the FBI. We don't have law enforcement authority, but we certainly have a lot of information and capabilities at our disposal in, in the agency. And back for most of my career, the FBI, before 9-11, really didn't have much of an intelligence capability. They were a crime-fighting organization, and uh, that's what they were great at. Post 9-11, we actually helped them to develop their intelligence division, which is great, where they now have analysts and things like, like we have. But those were kind of the twofold things. Uh, we were not allowed to spy on American citizens. When we weren't allowed to run covert operations in the United States, it was merely more of a partnership with businesses willing to help with atmospherics and also a lot of work with the FBI. Your career there spanned 22 years, and it bridged several very different geopolitical paradigms from the Cold War to what was originally called the Global War on Terror. With the benefit of hindsight with the perspective you've gained over two decades plus in the CIA, do you think we're facing a more dangerous world now than when you joined at the height of the Cold War? I do. You know, when I was in the CIA, I never thought I would ever say that. I thought this was, you know, with Hezbollah and 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, I thought, okay, that's the end all be all. But it was very, that, that was a very kinetic world. Not that we don't have that today. But this, the world today is more amorphous, right? It's, it's cyber. They can knock you out without having to put armies' boots on the ground or to break into a place to take out a server or something. I mean, it's the Internet of Things and cyber that, that's scary. It's the geopolitical constant shifting of loyalties and, and allies. You know, that even our allies in, in Europe, you know, the traditional NATO allies, we can count on them. But again, it's a different kind of war. It's, it's a different kind of war than we're used to, than World War II, Gulf War I, Vietnam, Gulf War II, et cetera. Even what we have now going on in Afghanistan that, you know, at some point it's going to be winding down. I think it's a much more dangerous world. And I think you need perhaps the kind of talents that I didn't have growing up. You know, I was kind of this traditional mindset. You need people with great business sense, people with great cyber skills. You need people that and the engineering skills and, and also geopolitical skills and kind of be able to forecast what's going on, what's going to happen in the world. So, yeah, it is a much more dangerous role and likely to become so in the future. 
Does CIA have its own operations and assets dedicated to cyber, or do you mainly leverage NSA and Cyber Command and other agencies? Or is this something that you're prioritizing to the point of building that talent in-house? No, I mean, I think uh, I think the agency has its own capabilities in cyber. I remember when I was at, at CIA, I'd, I'd visit a lot of different entities because we worked a lot with government as well. And it seemed like at one point everybody had a cyber command of some sort, right? It was the Air Force and Army and blah, blah, blah. And NSA, of course, is the big one. That's all well and good. Um, I just want to make sure that we are all connected. You know, bigger is not always better. I'm not privy to this. I'm not in the government anymore. I just hope that with the advent of different cyber entities within the, the U.S. government, that they are coordinating their efforts and that they're making sure that when you're going after bad guys, that it's not just a shotgun approach, it's a more laser beam focused approach to get the most bang for your buck. But yes, uh, you know, the agency certainly does have, have cyber capabilities. So you spent 22 years and then transitioned to the civilian world. What at least on paper, looks about as far away from CIA as you can get <laughs> a uh, stint running security at Microsoft. 16 years, right? Correct. But I would I would say one interesting area of overlap for me is that you went from projecting America's power through the force of its military and intelligence might to working in an institution that projected economic might. As part of that, you traveled the world. You were in charge of security globally for Microsoft, right? Correct. How did you see global perceptions of America shifting over the course of your career from, let's start at the beginning in, in the Cold War when America's security umbrella protected Eastern Europe to your time at Microsoft, where some of those same European countries were suing your employer for overreach and, and monopolistic behavior. How did you see on the ground perceptions of America and Americans evolving? Great question. Certainly, I think in the 80s when I was when I was working there and I had a fair amount to do with, you know, obviously foreign governments, foreign military, police, intelligence services. It wasn't naivete on, on the part of some of a lot of these countries, but it was uh, kind of putting you on the pedestal because you're an American. And because of, you know, the might of America, both military and economic, your democracy. I think to, to a large extent, there are a great deal of people who still feel that way. But I think there's a lot more skepticism about about the ability of America to manage its affairs, the ability of America to straighten up its own house because of all the issues that have gone in place, whether it's economic or racial tensions or the economic divide. The way I looked at it, everywhere I went in Microsoft, we had subsidiaries all over the world. You talked to a lot of foreign nationals. I think the people at Microsoft who worked for, whether Germany or Japan or, or Istanbul, they loved working for Microsoft. I don't think they looked down on us. There were probably people in those countries that didn't like Microsoft as an entity, but it's always a balancing act because you don't like it as an entity, maybe for whatever reason, or any multinational, but those multinationals employ hundreds, not thousands of the country people in that region. And so I didn't see huge anti-American rhetoric, but certainly I don't think there's that looking at you from a pedestal. I think there's more of a skewed eye as to, okay, well, you're America, you're great, economic might, military power when you want to project it, democracy, we'd love to 
you know, some countries would love to emulate us, but it's also, you're not perfect. And don't come across as perfect. Don't talk down to us. We're all human beings. And I think that's, that was kind of my perception over the years. That's what I saw. Do you think that is a healthier perception of America, especially as it projects power? Or do you think we have an opportunity to restore some of that that lost luster, as it were? Can we regain or reclaim that place on the pedestal, or should we? Well, I mean, I think we should. I mean, maybe I'm old school, but I think I talk to people all the time, including my wife, and I say, you know, it's funny. Whenever some bad stuff happens in the world, who are they calling, right? The world's not calling on Russia to help them out or China. They're always coming to us. You know, I'm not so naive when I was a kid thinking there's always, you know, white hats and, and black hats, right? There's a bit of a mix. But at the end of the day, I think America needs to lead, continue to lead the world in its position as the number one democracy in the world. Can we get that luster back? Sure we can. We need really good political leadership that knows how to project power, but can also stay humble. I think that's the big thing about it. You know, whether it's at a macro level with nation states or whether it's at a micro level with how I deal with my next door neighbors, right? You know, I can be very confident in in Mike Howard and proud of my background, but I'm going to make sure that I treat that neighbor with respect. I'm not going to be braggadocios. You know, I'm going to treat them the way they want to be treated. We've done it before in the past. There's no reason why we can't do it now. I think most of the world wants to look up to the United States for any number of reasons. And I think this world would be in a far darker place if this country had never existed and had we not engaged in the things that we've engaged in over the world to stop bad guys from doing bad things to good people. But we just have to get back to the basis of who we are as a democracy. We're not here to impose our will on people. We want to free the oppressed, kind of like the Green Beret slogan. And we want to support those governments that are trying to fight against terrorism or whoever is against their democratic states. We want to do it legally, want to do it morally. And we also want to make sure that we understand their sovereignty. And as long as we can do that, I think we can get back to that luster you mentioned. After your career at Microsoft, you retired, but you've, you've stayed busy speaking and giving interviews about crisis leadership, about leading through difficult times. That's pretty well-timed. What wisdom can you share with us about leading through the moment, the multiple crises we find ourselves in right now? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm actually finished putting pen to paper to a book on leadership that hopefully will, will be coming out in the summer. In the process of writing that book, you know, obviously these, those questions that you pose sort of come to mind. I think one of the things I remember from the different crisis situations we managed at Microsoft or even at CIA was that as a leader, yes, you're there to, to call the ball, as it were, when a critical decision is made, but you don't make it in a vacuum. And it's amazing to me how many people I've run into over the years that feel like because you're the leader, you've got to make all the decisions yourself. When you've got, hopefully, you've built a capable team of subject matter experts that can say, hey, boss, we have two choices here, A or B. We collectively looked at the data, looked at the ROI, looked at, you know, kind of pluses and minuses. We think we should go B. And to me, if you're going to manage a crisis situation, it starts with the people that you're leading, the people that you have working underneath you. And it takes time to build up those teams to get the right people 
who you can trust that can give you the wise counsel, who can even tell you, boss, you're wrong. You're going down a rabbit hole. We need to go this direction. If you have the right team, as you well know, Ken, if you have the right team and you, you've treated them right and you've trained them right in terms of how to manage crisis situations, then you're in a better position uh, to deal with whatever is coming up ahead. doesn't mean it won't be difficult. It doesn't mean you won't have some people burn out, you know, as much as you try to give people some, some relief, some time off. I mean, it, it is what it is. That's kind of the job. But the nucleus is that team. Without it, you're flailing away on your own. You can't make good decisions, and you're, you're probably going to make a mistake at some point. Well, thanks for sharing that, Mike. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. What is the bravest decision that you've ever been a part of? <laughs> well, this is more of a, a personal thing, but, you know, I, I didn't retire from CIA. After 22 years, you know, I found myself in a position where I wanted to do other things. An opportunity provided itself at Microsoft. I had probably all the colleagues working for me at the time that said, you're making a big mistake. You're ruining your career. You're giving up your guaranteed retirement if you only stay on for another five years or 10 years. And I knew it was, it was risky. I didn't know anything about the private sector. But internally, you know, you kind of get that, if it's not right, you get the little thing in the back of your neck every so often, or you get something in your gut or your heart. In this particular case, it was like, no, nah, this is the right decision to make. And it was a leap of faith. I didn't know anybody at Microsoft. I didn't know anything about that world. Ultimately, it paid off. It was the best decision I ever made. Been an honor having you on Burn the Boats. I hope you come back. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again to Mike Howard for joining me. In the next episode of Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Steve Schmidt, longtime Republican strategist. Steve was a founder of The Lincoln Project, a political action committee that helped ensure the defeat of Donald Trump. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.